can turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. <clears throat> Zach said, I would appreciate if you would uh, pray for me this morning as we go through the sermon. I, I had strep throat earlier in this week and I kind of coughed my way through the first service. So you pray for me and I'll pray for you. <clears throat> Uh, most of my most embarrassing moments, I don't remember. I think it's kind of a you know, defense mechanism. Put them out of, my, out of my mind so whenever anybody asks, hey, what's your most embarrassing moment? I, I don't have any. I don't, I don't remember. Although there is one that I remember um, pretty vividly. Uh, and this happened when I was in seminary. I was a student there, and I was sitting in the student center with my roommate. And uh, another student walked up. Actually, he didn't walk up. He came up on crutches. And I, I didn't know this guy real well. My roommate knew him fairly well. But he came up on crutches. He sat down with us, began to talk, found out that he had sprained his ankle. Well, I'd had a lot of sprained ankles, played basketball growing up. And so I began to give him some instructions on how he could rehab his sprained ankle. You know, I'm giving him pretty good advice, pretty good wisdom, right? You know, he, he listened to me. He was grateful and thankful. And then he got on his crutches. He walked off. And as he left, I noticed my roommate was just staring at me. I go, what? what? And he goes, my roommate said, you know, he's a physical therapist. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. No. No, I probably, probably wouldn't have given all that advice. I just, I just wanted to make a contribution to the conversation, right? I, I want my words to have significance. I want my life to have significance. I want, I want to lead a life that matters. I want to know that it was valuable that I spent my time here on earth. And I think that that's really just consistent with human nature. We want to know that we have left a mark, that we've made an impact. The problem comes when we try to find our our significance and our value outside of the revealed will of God. This morning, as Zach prayed, we're going to look at the story of the Tower of Babel. It's chapter 11. It's the final story in what's described as primeval history. That is the early history of the earth. And it's an excellent illustration of this consistent pattern of fallen mankind to find life or to make life work outside of the revealed will of God. So I want us to begin by reading chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Genesis 11, verses 1 through 4. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. Came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And I'll give you a little setting for this story. Uh, The land of Shinar is in uh, Babylonia, or modern-day Iraq. And the city of Babylon, where the tower was built, is probably... Uh, Babylon. It's probably where all this occurred. And for generations, artists have tried to figure out a way to depict what this tower may have looked like. Uh, Most of the early paintings you'll see is a a cylindrical tower, multiple layers, stair-stepped in. But probably the tower looked like a a ziggurat. There are several of these types of uh, buildings throughout modern-day Iraq. This one is uh, actually down near Ur, where Abraham came from. This is a reconstruction of that same tower. It's a ziggurat. Probably went up multiple more layers. And, you know, if you think about it, really there's no problem with building a tower. There's nothing inherently wrong with creating a tower. They were just using the technology of the day and they were working in cooperation with one another. The problem was in their motivation, in what was driving them. 
And essentially what we will discover is they were seeking to make their lives work completely independently from what God had revealed. I want you to turn back with me to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. Again, what we notice is there's nothing inherently wrong with building a city or building a tower within the city. But in the early history of Genesis, the first city builders were always building in rebellion against God. Genesis chapter 4, we find our first city builder, verse 16. It says, Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. He built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after his son. And from him there emerged a generation, a civilization of people who lived in rebellion against God. Because Cain had been sent out, and the curse upon him was that he would wander. And so he went into the land of Nod, which you recall means the land of wandering. But rather than wandering, he rebelled against God and he built a city in defiance against God. Second city city builder we find is in Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10, verse 8. It says, Now Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and therefore it said, Like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Now there are many name, reasons that you should not name your son Nimrod. Um, right? But fundamentally, the name means rebel. They means rebel or rebellion. Nimrod rebelled against God and he created a generation that rebelled against God. Nimrod or Nimrod's descendants are the ones who built the city of Babel and the tower that is within the city of Babel. And it's probably later in the days of Peleg, you see him down in verse 25, that this scattering occurred. It says, uh, Peleg, in his days the earth was divided. In other words, Genesis chapter 10 with the table of nations tells us uh, why what happened after the nations were scattered in the narrative of Genesis 11, why the nations were scattered and why languages developed. And what we're looking at this morning is, is, is why. Why did these people choose to rebel against God? Why did they choose to live independently from God? I'm going to argue that there were two motivations. Uh, the first is pride, and the second was fear. And pride and fear. Okay, our first clue is in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 2. As it came about as they journeyed toward the east. Remember in the Genesis narrative that when people move toward the east, they're moving away from the will of God. Okay, there's geographic significance. We saw it with Cain. Cain, as he moved out under the curse of God, he moved where? Toward the east. These people moved toward the east, away from the will of God. And again, rather than filling the earth and subdue it, scattering, they come together in order to build a city. In fact, they choose to build a tower that will reach into the heavens. And the Hebrew word for tower actually comes from a root word that means pride, literally. Okay, and, and this symbol of their pride, they decide we're not content with it being just any old tower. It's going to be a tower that actually reaches up into the throne room of God. Because in ancient Near Eastern thought, the heavens were the domain of God and the earth was the domain of man. And this is illustrated later in Psalm chapter 115, verse 16. The heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. So they build a tower that reaches up into the domain of God. And we're told 
Their motivation is to make a name for themselves. Say, come let us gather together. Let us build a symbol of pride, a tower, a migdal. Let it reach into the heavens, into the very domain of God. And we can hear echoes of the temptation that was given to Eve. You don't need to stay where you are. You can be like God. And as a result, let us make a name for ourselves. Philo, the Jewish philosopher, tells us that each man inscribed his name on a brick and put it in the wall. A monument to what they could create. You know, this is consistent with our culture. What do we tell people as they go out to find a career? We say, go out and make a name for yourself. Go out and make your mark in the world. Leave a legacy for yourself. It's just an illustration of human pride. I I tried to find a contemporary way to illustrate this for you, and I actually stumbled upon something I thought was um, pretty interesting. This is a guy named Daniel Michael Miller II. Uh, Actually, this is no longer his name. Uh, In 2008, he changed his name from Daniel Michael Miller II to The Dan Miller Experience. This is now his official name. His first name is The, in quotes, Dan. The Dan is his first name, middle name, Miller, last name, Experience. And when I read this article about this name change, I thought, you know, his parents should have stuck with Nimrod. (laughs) You know? Really? Dan. Okay. But, you know, we all do it in, in ways large and small, don't we? We're complimented for something and we take the credit. We forget even in in our, our hearts and our minds, let alone our words, to turn and say, no, everything that I have, everything that I am is a gift from God. He is the creator and I am the creature. We take the credit and try to make a name for ourselves. It says in Isaiah chapter 2 verse 17, The pride of man will be humbled and the loftiness of men will be abased and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. To every time and in every place that God sees human pride beginning to emerge, he crushes it. Why? Because God's a bully? Because God is so powerful and he can crush pride that he just arbitrarily chooses to crush it? No, God crushes pride because... Pride is the height of foolishness. It, it's, we're told in Proverbs, it's, it's folly. Because there's nothing inherent in us that makes us great. We're great only in relationship to God. Only God is great. And we need to frequently remind ourselves of this fact. Only God, only God is great. I love the words of this, uh, the prophet in Isaiah chapter 40, 40, verse 22. I've actually memorized these. He said, He is the one who sits on the earth's horizons. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers before him. Compared to God, he looks down and he looks down at the the greatest among men and women and he says, don't be so proud. In the sight of God, they are as grasshoppers, as nothing. I want you to keep your place here in Genesis and turn back with me to Psalm chapter 8. In the sight of God... We're like grasshoppers. Or as it says in chapter 40 of Isaiah, even the greatest nations, they're like a speck of dust on the earth. And yet amazingly, God has chosen to exalt mankind. The only creature made in the image of God, having the opportunity to bear the name of God throughout all of creation and make God's name great. It is our relationship with God, wisely understanding who we are in relationship to him, that gives us our greatness and nothing else. Psalm chapter 8, David's meditation upon creation. 
Verse 3, he says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him, being just a grasshopper in your sight? And yet you have made him a little lower than God. You crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. And so wisdom is learning who we are in relationship to God and making his name great rather than exalting ourselves. So they are first driven by pride. Second, I would argue, they are motivated by fear. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 1. It says, God blessed Noah and his sons and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Where did we heard that before? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, God made Adam and Eve in his image, male and female. He made them, brought them into relationship. And he said, in the context of your relationship with one another, your community, in the context of relationship with me, I want you to rule over my, all of my creation. Now be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. But what do these people do? Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. They said, come, let us gather together. Otherwise, we will be scattered. And we don't want to be scattered. They disobeyed the express will of God, I would argue, because of fear. And this is a picture of uh, the plane in Shinar. Out in a plane like this, you'll notice there, there are no natural defenses. So if enemies came in, they would have no way to protect themselves. And so out of fear, rather than trusting in God's protection, out of fear they build a city. And they build a tower so they can run into that tower and be safe. Safe from enemies, but I argue they're also worried about something else. You notice in this photo... Um, you don't see a lot of rock outcroppings. It's just a flat plain. There's dirt everywhere. There's mud everywhere. There are no other building materials other than mud and tar. But if you build a mud house and the rains come, what happens? Well, it disintegrates. So they learned how to take the mud and to bake it into bricks so it would be impervious to the waters. And then they filled in the gaps, the seams with tar. It's a petroleum product. And when it would sit on the surface, the sun would bake it and it become very sticky so they could seal it up. So if rains came, they'd be protected. And if another, another flood came, they'd be safe. Because they would build a tower that could reach into the heavens. And never again could God destroy them with a flood. But God had promised not to destroy them with a flood, hadn't he? He even put a sign in the skies, the rainbow. But they didn't trust God. They were afraid. They did not believe the word of God. Now, I believe it's, it's natural, it's normal, normal for us as, as men and women made in the image of God to want our lives to count for something. We want to have meaningful, significant, valuable lives. That's normal. It's normal for us to want a sense of security and safety. 
The problem comes when we try to find that meaning outside of the will of God or we try to find that safety outside of the will of God. Then we begin to build towers for ourselves rather than for God. So we're told that God looks down and he sees their activity and he pronounces judgment upon it. Genesis chapter 11, verse 5. It says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. God came down. Now, there's a lot of irony in this story. Uh, I'll point it out as we go along. But this is the first illustration. Uh, God had to come down. Right? They're building the, the, the greatest edifice that they could possibly conceive of, and God can barely see it. Now, is that, is that true, that God can't actually see it or he doesn't know what's going on? No, that's written for our benefit. That's called anthropomorphic language. Put in our terms, this is like a speck of dust. God has to kind of get on his hands and knees and he calls the angels around and says, what is that that they're building down there? Is that the best that they have to offer? God had to come down and see this thing that they were constructing. Because God is the only one who is great. Now, a couple weeks ago, uh, my family was given fo- uh, football tickets to the A&M game. Hadn't gone this year. It was a really wonderful gift. All four of us got to go. And I will tell you, I, I love going to games in Kyle Field. You know, it's just, I love the, the sound. I love the excitement. We went up early and watched the Corps marching in. We saw the whole thing, whole experience. Uh, I love it during the game when you see, you know, like 40,000 plus students sawing varsity's horns off. I, I just, I love the whole experience at Kyle Field. I like standing under the Jumbotron. You know, I'm like, that's that's awesome. Kind of gave me a fresh vision for our game room. I'm like, Tris, our TV is way too small. Look at this is awesome. It's big. I mean, everything about Kyle Field is, is big. It's huge. And I began to think, wow, this is going to be amazing. They do this remodel. You know, apparently right after Mississippi State game, they began immediately just tearing stuff up, working around the clock. $450 million. It's going to seat 102,500 people. Largest stadium in the SEC, right? Right. That deserves a whoop. But then as I was sitting there and I was watching this, I was observing this and looking at this stadium, I couldn't help but think about the Tower of Babel because I was in the midst of preparing for that message and I thought, what, what is God doing as we reconstruct and remodel? Is he saying, son, spirit, they're doing something down there. I can barely see it. <laughs> Only God is great. Psalm 127 verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. Notice those two primary verbs. Unless the Lord builds, there's no significance. Unless the Lord guards, there is no safety. There is only significance and safety in God because only God is great. God came down, and then God confused their languages. Verse 7. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. Verse 4, it said, the people said to one another, come, let us build. Verse 7, same word. God says, no, I don't think so. Come, let us go down. And literally, it's a cooking term. It means to to mix up. It means to stir the ingredients. Let's stir their pot. 
Hey, let's confuse all of their language so that they can no longer use the technology that they have discovered and come together and communicate with one another. Let's put all of this to a stop. God confused their language and God scattered them. And God scattered them. Verse 8. So the Lord scattered them abroad from over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Again, we have uh, some irony, some sarcasm here. The word Babel in Babylonian dialect means the gate of God. But in Hebrew, it sounds like confusion. Babel, literally. God says, let let me label what you are doing. It's nothing. You say, come, let us build. And I say, no. (laughs) No. You will not. You say, let us gather together. I say, no, you will be scattered. You will be scattered. God comes down. God confuses their language. God scatters them. And yet God always provides. In, in judgment, there is there's always mercy. Remember, when Adam and Eve were cursed, Eve was told, yes, you and your husband are coming under the curse. You'll be cast out of the garden. But I will send a seed from you, and he will crush the serpent. In Noah's day, when humanity was getting worse and worse and worse, coming, becoming so corrupt that they're about to destroy themselves, we're told Noah found favor. So in judgment, there was still grace, there was mercy. In this case as well, humanity is getting worse and worse and worse. Verse 6, the Lord said, Behold, they're one people, they all have the same language, and this is what they began to do. Now, nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Not meaning that God couldn't stop them at a future date, but that they're hell-bent on destruction and I must intervene in order to save them. So even in judgment, there is mercy. There's grace. So God scatters them and sends them out and we will find that grace and mercy in the next chapter where we find Abraham. The nations are created and dispersed and languages are created and there is confusion and yet God reaches in and he takes one man and one family and through him his intention is to go back to the nations and to bless all of the nations through him. And we see a really fascinating theme begin to emerge now in the book of Genesis. And that is uh, within these competing kingdoms there are also in a sense competing cities. Babylon is, is a real place, it's a historical place, but it also becomes a metaphor for life lived in rebellion against God. God chooses a city for himself, it is Jerusalem, it's the city of peace. God selects a city and God begins to build a city that's in opposition to the city of Babylon, the city that is in rebellion, self-centeredness against God. And what we see is the city of Jerusalem doesn't always function as it should, uh, it goes through its own t- periods of rebellion and hardship, suffering. But God continues his faithfulness to draw men and women to himself so that anyone can come from any tribe or tongue or people or language. And if they're willing to live in submission to God and worship him, they come to the city of Jerusalem and they worship the one true God. And he makes a promise that one day that city will be perfected. See a foretaste of this in Isaiah chapter 54. The Lord says, your foundations, Jerusalem, I will lay it in sapphires. And not, not mud and tar, not even stone and mortar. But I'm going to rebuild Jerusalem. It'll be a new Jerusalem. And I'm going to lay its foundation in sapphires. Fulfillment of this we see in the book of Revelation, chapter 21. 
The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire. And we go through all 12 foundation stones for the 12 tribes, for the 12 apostles. And all is a precious jewel. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. The street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation are invited to come in and worship the one true God. And we're told that the church now in the present generation is to be a foretaste of this new city. It began in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, when the church was born, what did we see? Multiple languages being spoken, but all sending one message, and that is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The king is here. There's one true king, there's one anointed one, the Messiah, who gave his life to pay for sins. And he will come, he will return, he will set up his reign from Jerusalem over all of the earth. Believe in him. If God has given you him, he will give you all good things freely. And ultimately that will be fulfilled when Jesus Christ returns. We're told that'll be the song that we sing for all of eternity. Worthy are you, Jesus, Son of God, to take the book or the scroll, which is the title deed for earth, to break it and to begin to rule and reign over all of earth. And you're worthy because you purchased for God men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom, priests to our God. And what will they do? They will reign over the whole earth. They will fulfill God's ultimate commission of ruling and reigning, of scattering over the earth and making the name of God great. So church, how do we apply this? How do we apply this passage of scripture? Tower of, of Babel. You know, most of us have probably never been to, to Shinar. And we say, you know, I don't, I don't, actually, I don't actually build towers, Brian. <laughs> well, really? I read one author and he said, within each of us there is a, a tower of Babel heart. And we, we want to find ways to make life work outside of God. Students, who chose your major for you? Did you choose it in consultation with your maker? Who who gets to choose your career? Who chooses where you move? Who chooses the house you purchase or the car you purchase? Who has control over your savings account? Who controls your retirement account? See, any time that we choose to take control of things in our life, we are building our own tower. We're saying, God, you don't know what's best in my life, and so I must control it, I must manage it, because you don't know. If pride is, the, in a sense, the, the worst of vices, then humility is the greatest of virtues. How do we become humble people? And that's really the essence of this. We, we stop building towers for ourselves, but instead... We humble ourselves before God and we build for him. How do we do that? First Peter chapter 5, verse 5, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Two things I want you to notice in this. First is, it is possible to humble yourself. You can humble yourself. It's a command. Humble yourself. You can do that. Alternatively, if you don't humble yourself, God will humble you. Right? Because the loftiness of man will be abased, and only God will be exalted in that day. So humble yourselves, Peter says. Second thing I want you to observe is that there's a connection between pride and fear. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. 
And while you're doing that, cast all of your care upon him. Trust him. Because when you don't trust him and you're afraid, then you gather your life together to yourself and you take control, and that's pride. And so what you'll often observe in yourself or in others is that pride and fear or pride and insecurity often go hand in hand. And so the beginning point for us to learn to humble ourselves, I would say, is this. Replace fear with faith. And replace fear with faith. Do you genuinely trust God with your life? Especially when you're going through difficult circumstances You think, well, God has forgotten me, or God doesn't know best, or God's timing is not good. He needs to intervene now. Do you trust God? And probably one of the the most well-known events in the life of Christ is when he's out on the boat. Remember, he's with uh, with the disciples, and a storm comes in, and Jesus is sound asleep. Storm is raging. Boat's getting tossed and turned, but Jesus is asleep. Jesus is not afraid. He's not worried. He's not anxious. Disciples are frantically trying to keep the boat afloat. They're pitching gear over. They're bailing out. Finally, they realize they have no more resources. There's nothing they can do to keep the boat afloat. And they wake Jesus up and say, Jesus, don't you care about us? Jesus, don't you care that we are going to die? And Jesus, remember, he wakes up, he stands up, notices there's a storm, and he says, that's enough. And the sea calms. He's trying to teach his disciples a lesson. If they are with him, they're always safe. Whether the sea seems calm or whether it's storming, if you are with Jesus, you are safe. You know that you will go through trials and tribulations. You'll have suffering in this life. But if you know Jesus Christ, then you know that your eternity is secure. You know that you will have life that lasts forever, life that is safe and secure. No more sorrow, no more tears, no more suffering. In fact, in that moment, God will take his own name and he will write it across your forehead. You will have safety and security and significance forever if you belong to Jesus Christ. And you can belong to Jesus Christ simply by saying, God, thank you that you sent your son to die for my sins. Maybe some of you have not done that this morning. Maybe that's the most important thing you need to do. To discover that Jesus Christ is your Savior. He is your safety. Right where you're sitting. You don't even need to close your eyes or bow your heads. You can just sit right where you are. In your heart, just pray and say, God, thank you that you gave Jesus to pay the penalty for my sins so that I can have life that lasts forever. And if you've given me Jesus, I know that you won't withhold any good thing from me. Do you trust him? I think our our steps to humility begin by replacing fear with faith. Second, pursue great things for God. Jeremiah was warned. God said to him, Jeremiah, are you seeking great things for yourself? Seek them not. Jeremiah was not warned that he should not seek great things, but he shouldn't seek great things for himself. Again, this is natural and normal for us to want to live lives that genuinely matter, that genuinely make a difference. But if we try to make a name for ourselves, it will be forgotten, men and women. You want to be truly great? Then pursue great things for God. I love the words of the psalmist, Psalm 45. David said, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. They may forget my name, but they will not forget your name. Pursue great things things for God. 
And third, serve in the name of Christ. You want to learn how to become humble? Just serve. Serve people who can't give anything back to you. Serve people who will not necessarily be grateful to you, who won't reward you with money or praise or thanks. Just serve. One of the greatest steps to us learning humility is to bend low and serve. We just are simply following the example of Christ. Imagine this, the Son of God who had lived for all of eternity in the presence of the Father, fully God, chose to come to earth and take on human flesh. And not just live as a man, but he chose to serve men. He said of himself, the Son of Man does not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The creator of the universe serving his creatures. Illustrated when he bent low in his final supper with his disciples and took on the robe of a servant and actually washed their feet. Their stinky, smelly feet that had been walking out in the dirt. The creator of the universe who made this clay and made their feet, washed their feet. And as he rose, he said to his disciples, now, I just want you to do the same for one another. Serve. Serve in the name of Christ. And recently... um, Tristy and I went to uh, Chicago again, hadn't been there for quite a while, and um, we were uh, looking at the skyline, and uh, we didn't get a chance to go see the Sears Tower. I'd been up in the Sears Tower before, uh, but the guy who was with us said, the Sears Tower is not the uh, tallest building in the U.S. any longer. Um, I guess the Sears Tower also got renamed, it's not the Sears Tower, it's Willis Tower now, but it's not the tallest building in the United States. I discovered, actually, that just last week, a committee met, and they declared that the New World Trade Center in New York is actually the tallest tower in the United States. I think you'll appreciate this. The name of the committee is the Height Committee of the Council on Tall Buildings and Urban Habitat. (laughs) I thought, wow, they need like a PR manager. Who who named that committee? And I thought, how do you get on that committee? And how often does that committee meet? That seems like a lot of power and authority. I was just imagining... The Height Committee of the Council on Tall Buildings and Urban Habitat getting together and probably, you know, probably arguing and throwing stuff at one another. No, that building's tall. I don't, I don't know how they deliberate. But I'm just imagining, you know, they're having this deliberation. And then God looks down. And he nudges the sun and the spirit and the angelic host and says, what are they doing? Oh, oh, they're arguing about whose building is taller. <laughs> we should do something about that. Whose tower are you constructing? If you build for yourself, it will not last. If you build for the honor, the reputation, the name of Jesus Christ, it will be known forever. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. And I thank you, Father, that you have revealed to us how our lives can be truly meaningful and truly secure in you. I pray, Father, that we would step away from the foolishness of our pride and that we'd step into a deeper and deeper trust in you, in your goodness, in your kindness. Father, thank you for showing us how we can have life and how our life can have meaning. It's in Christ's powerful and precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.